0: The Bob Murphy Show, episode 252.
1: There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now, here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to
0: another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today, I'm going to be talking about the Nobel Prize in Economics that was awarded in 2022, namely to Ben Bernanke, Douglas Diamond, and Philip dip big. I'll give the usual disclaimer when people talk about this stuff and they think, actually, in case at this point, there's four of you left who don't know this. It's actually not the Nobel Prize, right? So Alfred Nobel established the prize back in the day. I don't remember exactly when, early 20th century. And it was for stuff like physics and chemistry. And then at some point, the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences began picking the recipients of the I'm going to butcher this pronunciation. Sveriges Riksbank Prize in Economic Science. And by the way, that was not the correct accent to use. I just made up something like Inspector Clouseau was reading this. Okay. So I'm, that was not even an attempt. In memory of Alfred Noble, that's what they call it. All right. So it was the, oh, actually, I have it right here. It was established in 1968 and it was first awarded in 1969. So, as I said, when I was doing a human action podcast episode with Jeff Deist on this topic, I agreed with him that the Swedes began doing this to sort of confer extra prestige on economics, especially in the mid 20th century. There was a lot of what they called physics envy in economics. And you can see this with most quintessentially in the work of Paul Samuelson, where he was trying to make economics rigorous in his framework, in his mind. And that meant making it look like physics. Interestingly, I'm going off on several tangents here, but don't worry, folks. I'm gonna, like a good computer programmer, keep closing these little do loops and coming back to the main thread. What Samuelson actually did was more of make economics into a branch of applied mathematics. Because if you go get actual science journals and look at like cutting edge physics articles, they're not like theorems the way you know Samuelson's work was a collection of theorems. And then other economists were like, oh yeah, that's so rigorous, that's awesome, we're doing that. And that's not the bulk certainly of theoretical work even in physics, it doesn't look like that. Okay, so there's rigor involved and yes, there's implications saying, well, if these are the assumptions of our model, then you know, we can prove these are the predictions that would pop out of it rigorously and then well, let's go look at nature and see if that's indeed what happens. But again, it, just, it doesn't even have the same feel and that's not just me talking. There was a guy, oh boy, I'm going to blank on his name. There's a quant who was a PhD in physics in the 80s. And then he started working for like Salmon Brothers. And then he switched somewhere else. And he wrote a book on his time on Wall Street. And he said the same thing. You know, so he was coming from physics. And then he switched over to economics and finance and started reading all the literature there. And that he just thought it was funny that you know Samuelson thought he was being like a physicist and he wasn't. He was, I don't know if he named Samuelson by name, I can't remember. And I'm not even naming this author by name, so what does it matter? But definitely, I remember thinking like, oh, yeah, right, I agree that that's the economists who in the mid-20th century thought they were copying the physicists actually weren't. Okay, so in any event, and so the point is, we want to have a Nobel Prize too, because the public, you know, every year when you say, who wins the Nobel Prize in physics or chemistry, that helps to reinforce in the mind of the public, this is a science and we like science, don't we? Science lets us do things. It helps us understand how the world works and achieve our goals. And so likewise, well, gee, if economists are winning Nobel prizes, then that must be a science. And that means as economists are out there busy working in their classrooms and offices and graduate schools, that we must be figuring out how to better control the economy. That's cool, right? So that's, I think, the rationale for that. So anyway, I'll be talking about this episode. I'll put a link to my conversation with Jeff. Probably if you're going to listen to that, it would make sense to listen to that first. You don't need to. It's not like I'm going to say, go listen to that stuff. And then here I'm going to just extend the analysis that Jeff and I laid the foundation for. But I'll get into details on this episode over here on my podcast that we're you know, more in-depth than what Jeff and I talked about. So go to BobMurphyShow.com slash 252 for all these links. Okay, so I'll just go through this first Bernanke and then I'll talk about Diamond Dipfig. Because for one thing, it's the Bernanke stuff is more intuitive and, you know, he's more famous. Probably most of you are more interested in hearing my take on that. So the first obvious thing to talk about is, you know, was this political? So I don't know. And I don't just mean like in the cosmic sense that how could you ever really get inside someone else's head? I don't just mean that or actually be getting inside their mind. Right. Because I'm a dualist. But I I am suspicious. Right. I don't think it's a coincidence that they gave it to Bernanke. Let me say this. Given that they were going to give it to Bernanke, it totally makes sense. They're going to give it to Diamond Dip Big too. All right. Because they're what they won the prize for. And this is typical where the prize will be for a topic. And then if there were multiple thinkers who contributed to the field's understanding on that particular topic, then the prize will be jointly awarded. All right, so that happens all the time, not just in economics, but other areas too. You know, in physics, like the guys who just won it, I don't remember their names, but they did work on like a spooky action at a distance that you have, Particles that get entangled, the quantum level, and then even if you separate them really far apart, there's a sense in which it seems that they can communicate instantaneously with each other. And that was something where early on when quantum physics was being developed, that was one implication of the model they were using. And Einstein famously disagreed with that. I think that was called the EPR paradox. It was Einstein and then two other people one whose name started with a P and one whose name started with an R. I think that's what that was referring to. And so Einstein was trying to show, hey, you can't, information can't travel faster than light, right? Who said that? I did that too. 186,000 miles per second. It's not just a good idea, it's the law. So he was saying, you know, the current development of quantum physics, the way Niels Bohr and these guys are developing it, that. Can't be right because if it were, then you could theoretically imagine you have these particles that interact with each other and then you separate them by a great distance. And then, hey, we go and look at pin down the mass of one particle over here. And then, according to quantum physics, that kind of implies that we must therefore be learning information about this other particle way over here now. And how could that be? You know, so in other words, like the researchers who are doing the experiment on the other particle way over here. Two solar systems away, how could it possibly be that what we measure over here, in the first one, affects what they see? Because then wouldn't that mean somehow like the particles have to know? Oh, what happened to my partner? Two solar systems away. Okay, so that kind of stuff. So anyway, the I got a lot of tangents today. Maybe it's because I know I don't have much red meat. and I'm just killing time. Who knows? So there were multiple physicists working on that stuff, and so since that was the topic that was being awarded this year in the 2022 physics Nobel. That's why they gave it to multiple people. So the same thing here, given that they were going to give it to Bernanke for his work on the role that banks play in financial crises, then they had to give it to diamond and dip And that's also, by the way, the route Peter Becky still holds out hope that Israel Kurzner might get a Nobel. And that's what he's saying. He, cause he's saying they're going to give it, or they could plausibly give it to William Bommel for his work on entrepreneurship. And then Becky's saying they can't give it to Bommel and not give it to Kirzner for that topic. And so what they could do is maybe they're just waiting to see if Kirzner dies first and then they can safely give it to Bommel. Also because they're both at NYU or, you know, we're at NYU, Kirzner's not there anymore. I don't know if Bommel still shows up. So it'd be extra weird to give it to Bommel, but not Kirzner. By the way, Bommel respects Kirzner. So does uh, Boyan Jovanovich. That's another guy there, like some of those old older guys that like really knew the literature and cared about the history of thought. Like they'd liked Kurzner, they, you know, they thought he was solid. I mean they, I'm sure they thought he didn't do much with mathematics, but whereas some of the younger people, the younger faculty at NYU, they literally didn't know who he was, or they were like, Yeah, I don't know who that one guy's office is right there that we walk by when we're going to the elevator. Don't know who that guy is. He's, you know, a dinosaur. Okay. So talking about Bernanke, what did he get the prize for? So his, oh, let me just mention in terms of the cynicism. So yes, it is entirely possible. I think that just like when they gave it to Paul Krugman, it wasn't completely outlandish. Krugman really did do a bunch of pioneering work in international trade theory. And I guess you call it economic geography, I think would be one of the Names of the subfields that, or I don't know if you call a field that he did a lot of pioneering work in. So it wasn't ludicrous that he won it, but you're s- suspicious about the timing and is, you know, did the people want to give him a platform when he won it, when given the role he was playing now as a public intellectual. So same thing here. I don't know enough about the personalities involved to say whether this is true or not, but it would not surprise me in the least if. They thought, you know what, we need to give a shot in the arm the reputation of central banks, people like Bernanke in particular, as the global financial system's getting ready to go through another hiccup, let's call it. And so let's go ahead and bolster the credibility of Ben Bernanke by giving him the Nobel Prize. Wouldn't surprise me at all if that's partly what the motivation was. So, as far as Bernanke's actual academic work, though, so he really was before this prize came out. It's not like he won it. And people are like, oh, geez, kind of. You know, to give an idea, the way like Obama gets the Nobel Peace Prize and that was ludicrous. Okay, this isn't like that. I'll put it that way. Okay, so it's in an alternate universe where Bernanke hadn't been the Fed chair. It wouldn't have been crazy for him to win the Nobel Prize at some point. Okay, so that's maybe that's one way of me getting across the distinction, whereas there's no way Obama would have gotten it. Had he not been the president who the time he got it hadn't even done anything yet. Right. So Bernanke in 1983 had an article in the American Economic Review called Non-Monetary Effects of the Financial Crisis and the Propagation of the Great Depression. Okay, so again, big picture. Bernanke shed more light on how banks operate in the market economy. What role do they serve? What function do they serve? And then why is it that massive bank failures during the Great Depression posed extra problems above and beyond what happened with their role in the quantity of money. All right. So real quickly, let me, let me say the intuitive thing first, get it out of the system. So a lot of people, of course, were flipping out about, you know, Bernanke getting it when, Hey, he was the chief architect of the great recession and blah, blah, blah. And he was at the helm and how could you possibly, and then his defenders were coming back and saying, this isn't about what he did as a central banker. This is about his academic work. Grow up, people. And I actually think the cynical criticism is lands in this one, even though in general, yeah, you can make a distinction between what somebody did once they were in an official capacity and you know what their academic work was, because the way that even the bank is describing the award here, they're saying, for example, like the subtitle of the awarding you know, on their press release they say their discoveries improved how society deals with financial crises and this year's laureates in the economic sciences ben bernanke douglas diamond and philip dipbig have significantly improved our understanding of the role of banks in the economy particularly during financial crises an important finding in their research is why avoiding bank collapses is vital Da-da-da-da-da. okay so something seems off to me because bernanke didn't see the crisis coming at all or he did see it in downplayed it for political reasons either way it's not good enough for him so i'll link in the show notes page if you've never seen it the compilation called ben bernanke was wrong and it just goes through and shows even from before he was fed chair like he was on the what was he was it the fomc i think so before he became the chair where he was from 2006 onward just you know appearing on cnbc stuff like that and just kept every stage of the crisis was wrong like in the beginning saying, Oh yeah, there's some issues in housing. I don't think it's going to be too bad. Then later. Okay. Yeah. The subprime sector is really awful. There's going to be a big crash there in housing, but it's going to be contained there. And then no, oh, the whole housing sector is going down. Yep. But it's not gonna be a recession. Then, Yep. Okay. We're going to have a recession, but it won't be too bad too. yeah, it's going to be a bad recession. All right. But you know what, with our tools and blah, 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 we think we'll get through this and it won't be as bad as the great depression. you right. So, He was wrong at every stage of the way. And so I want to say, surely that's relevant if we're trying to say that we're giving him an award for how he improved our understanding of financial crises. Right. It's like, well, he didn't improve his own understanding very much then. So it was like all of us except Ben benefited from his work. So, like I say, in this case, it's not completely unfair to take pot shots at him, just like, oh, well, you know, how come he was in charge then when this crisis happened, didn't see it coming like that? It does seem like there's a tension there, at least, if not a literal contradiction. Okay, so anyway, Bernanke's work, the big picture summary of the economist's interpretation of what happened in the Great Depression, because then his contribution will make more sense. So originally, the Keynesian story was, hey, during the 30s, there was a collapse in aggregate demand. Central banks tried to do what they could. They slashed interest rates down to zero. They pumped in a bunch of money, but it was too little, too late. And in particular, there was a liquidity trap. And that's a situation in which the conventional tools of monetary policy don't work anymore. Central banks are out of ammo. The famous phrase from John Maynard Keynes is that they were pushing on a string. Actually, I don't know if Keynes himself, that was a Keynesian expression. I don't know if, I don't remember if that was like literally in the general theory or Keynes later said or just... His acolytes said it. But okay. Just you say pushing on a string. What's the just picture it? You can pull on a string. That's effective. Right? You've got a string to, you grab your shoelace and you're pulling it. The shoe's gonna come towards you. But now when the string is extended, if you start pushing on the string, the shoe's sitting there, right? So pushing on the string doesn't do anything. That's the idea of what the situation central banks find themselves in when there's a liquidity trap, according to Keynesians. And so that's why, oh yeah, cutting interest rates, you know, once you get down to zero, can't do anything. At this point, pumping in more money doesn't do anything with conventional monetary operations because you're just the government's taking, you know, they issue new money, which is like a government liability that has 0% interest rate attached to it. And they're buying assets from the public that are government, like, you know, if they buy government bonds, which is typically what happens with central bank operations, then those bonds are what government liabilities with 0% interest rate at this point, if you pushed. The interest rates, at least on short-term government debt, down to basically zero. So they're just doing you know swaps of assets that are largely equivalent in all the characteristics that investors care about. So that's why conventional monetary policy runs out of steam once you get down to the 0% interest rate liquidity trap. Right? That's the idea. And so Keynesian said, what happened in the 30s is monetary policy went kaput. And that's why you needed to have big government deficits to fill the gap in aggregate demand. Okay, so that was the prevailing narrative, and economists bought that for a while. Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz come along in their monetary history, and they argue that, no, what happened is certainly in the U.S., it's not a story of the central bank doing everything it could and then running out of ammo. They blamed the Great Depression on the Fed being asleep at the wheel, and specifically that when the panic started, and then there were bank runs in the United States, and the way of fractional reserve banking system works is that if you pull your money out of a bank, it's not just bad for that individual bank, but it actually shrinks the quantity of money in the economy. And the reason it's easier to go the other way first, you got hundred dollars, you deposit it in your checking account, again, in a system that has fraction reserves. You still think you have hundred dollars in your possession, right? It's just now, instead of it being a hundred dollar bill in your wallet, when you check your checking account balance, it says you got an extra $100 in there. So you still, you don't think you gave up your $100. So it's still in your cash balance, just the form of it's changed. But now, if the bank, let's say it takes 90 of that and lends it out to other people, well, they now think they have 90 extra dollars that they didn't have before. And there's nobody in the economy who's down $90 because of that operation. So there's a legitimate sense in which the quantity of dollars in the economy just went up by $90 because you put your hundred in the bank and they lent out 90 of it, you know, specifically if you use monetary aggregates that include checking account balances, not just currency, right? So going the other way, if you pull your hundred dollars out of the bank, you know, cause you're worried your bank's going to fail or they're going to close their doors and not let you get your money for a while. You'd rather have 10, $10 bills sitting in your wallet than having the bank tell you, oh yeah, you got hundred dollars sitting in your checking account, don't worry about it. Well, then that is gonna pressure the banks to call in their loans or at least not extend them as they get paid. And so it's like the opposite of that transaction. So once the dust settles, you pulling your hundred dollars out of the bank is gonna shrink the quantity of money in society by $90. Okay. So in the early 1930s in the United States, there were massive bank failures and the public you know where it runs on bank The public's pulling their money out and what happened is the quantity of money i think if you measure it like by m2 went down by a third from like 1929 to 1933 the m2 measure of the money stock in the u.s went down again about by about a third and so Friedman and schwartz are saying well duh it's not surprising that prices and wages collapsed and that we had this awful depression when the stock of money goes down by a third. Like that's a huge adjustment for the economy to have to make in any scenario. But at that point, when it was already reeling from, you know, stock market crash and there were legitimate, quote, real economic imbalances that were hitting the economy, and then on top of that, you let the money supply drop by a third, what do you think's going to happen? So libertarian free marketeers liked that analysis because it was blaming the Fed, not unfettered greed. And unregulated financial markets. This is what the Keynesians were doing to say, oh, yeah, the, well, we didn't have the SEC and all this stuff in the 1920s. So no kidding. We had the Great Depression. Thank goodness FDR came in and gave us the New Deal. And now we haven't had another Great Depression since. Right. So Friedman's story was appealing to right wingers because he was saying, no, 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 it wasn't that the U.S. economy was unregulated. It's that the Fed didn't do its job. So it's blaming the Depression At least the original, you know, the Great Contraction, the early period in the 30s on government bureaucratic mistakes. Ironically, as Rothbard and other Austrians in that tradition point out, Friedman's argument is, in a sense, almost the exact opposite of the Rothbardian take. Rothbard argued that, yeah, the Fed caused the Great Depression because the Fed had loose policy in the 20s and blew up a giant asset bubble that then had to collapse or crash. Well, yeah, collapse works too. Right? So Rothbard didn't like that. And Krugman actually noted that too. Like, he didn't, I don't think he linked it to Rothbard, but he did say it's kind of funny how, you know, the Friedmanites blame the Fed when their critique is the Fed wasn't activist enough. That seems kind of weird coming out of the laissez-faire tradition. And I, you know, I'll give Krugman a point on that one. Okay, so That's the way things stood. And so Bernanke comes along in this 1983 article and he's saying, I don't know if I said it. It's in the American Economic Review, which is the most prestigious economics journal article. It's not like he wrote it for Rolling Stone. Bernanke is arguing that, okay, typically we look at monetary explanations or that's one way of looking at what happened in the early 30s in the US, you know, in the wake of the contributions of Friedman and Schwartz. But he's saying typically we're just looking at the bank failures vis-a-vis their contribution to the collapse and the quantity of money. But there's something above and beyond that. It's not merely that, oh, yeah, all these bank runs that ended up, you know, killing the banks. It's not merely that, that meant the quantity of money collapsed, And therefore, that's why the Great Depression got so bad in the beginning there. He's saying there is a mechanism through which failing banks add to a financial crisis or exacerbate it above and beyond just that impact of the role in the quantity of money. And he, he doesn't just say that, like he uses empirical evidence to try to justify that claim, which I, you know, I, I read his stuff before when I did my book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Great Depression and the New Deal. It's a good book if you haven't read it. It's a good book even if you haven't read it. So I read a bunch of Bernanke's stuff on the great depression in preparation for that book. But it's been a bit since I looked at it, but he does stuff like just to give you the basic idea. Oh, you know, here we can see periods where there were bank runs and the quantity of money didn't shrink so much. And yet the effects on economic output were pretty bad here. There were periods where, you know, the quantity of money shrank, but there weren't too many bank failures and the effects were different and blah, blah, blah. You know, so he was trying to isolate and show we really can demonstrate that there's something about bank failures per se that causes declines in real GDP or spikes in unemployment, whatever, over and above the effect merely on the falling money stock. And so, here it's, you know, as I say this stuff, it's pretty straightforward. It's, oh, well, because banks perform a vital function in the market economy, they link up savers and borrowers. And so, if that function gets interrupted, well, then that's going to make the economy less efficient. And so that's basically the story, which there's nothing wrong with that, but that's the story. Okay, so that's how Bernanke contributed. And then the conclusion is this is why they say it's important to not let your banks fail during a crisis because you want to keep the credit markets working. It's not merely that you want to have this channel open so that the Fed can keep the money stock where it should be. And you know, since the Fed typically gives money to the banks first and then they distribute to everybody else, that's not the only reason you want to keep the banks up and running. Right? And so then a lot of what happened under the Bernanke Fed was justified as like, oh, yeah, see, this is we're drawing here on the insights of Bernanke's academic work. That's why we have all these programs from the Fed to keep the banks in operation, not just the commercial banks, but the you know investment banks. Because Bernanke's work showed us that you know, banking is an important function in the market economy, and we got to make sure these institutions remain up and running. Okay, so that's the way they justified a lot of the stuff they did when he was at the helm. Even there, let me just mention real quickly, there was tension in particular with the Fed's decision in, what was it? I think it was October of 2008 to begin paying interest on reserves. Incidentally, this as is an aside for you purists out there. It's typical in the econ blogosphere to refer to it as interest on excess reserves. To my knowledge, they never paid a difference, a differential rate. I don't think they ever paid like one rate on excess reserves and a different rate on required reserves. I could be wrong about that. But I went to look it up and because someone recently, you know, made a big deal about it and how the Fed stopped doing one and not the other. And, and I looked at it and I was like, no, that's not true at all. That's totally wrong. So anyway... I just call it interest on reserves because even though in principle they made that distinction and you could see the different rates, I don't think they ever actually paid different rates. So anyway, they had the statutory authority to do it, but they hadn't pulled the trigger yet and they were supposed to do it later. And so they accelerated when they were going to start doing it in the fall of 2008. And so a lot of people were saying, well, gee, this seems to contradict Bernanke's work. It's not the work that I just summarized for you guys. It was different work. Like when he was talking about the problems that Japan was facing in the late nineties. And I think this is where like he got the nickname Helicopter Ben, is he was just saying that well, no, in certain situations you, you really just wanna if the public gets into a trap where they think they expect deflation to come and but you know the way you snap out of it is you just you liberally pump in money until you break out of that. And if conventional operations aren't working, well then you just gotta go skip the middleman and just, you know, get money in the hands of the public so they can go spend. And, you know, in principle, you could drop it out of a helicopter, right? That's what helicopter drop means in economics. Is there, you know, saying that like, you're just getting money in the hands of the public so they can go spend it. You're not like doing asset swaps and these other things and hoping, oh, if we boost the reserves of the banks, maybe they'll lend more. And that's the way ultimately we'll boost demand. No, like helicopter drop is you're just going out and, you know, making it rain. Okay, so... Tension was, well, gee, the part of why we're doing this, drawing on some of Bernanke's other academic work, is to get people to spend more Then why in the world is the Fed adopting a contractionary policy in October 2008, where they're paying banks interest if they keep the reserves parked at the Fed. Because on the margin, that's an extra incentive for the banks not to make loans to their customers. So the way I used to put it to audiences at the time was to say, "Yep, yeah, you see this part here. Right. When the Fed was saying we're doing all this stuff to keep credit flowing from Wall Street to Main Street. We're not trying to bail out Wall Street here. Our buddies. No, no, no. You know, as far as we're concerned, billionaires going broke is a good thing. But gosh, we just can't let credit flows get interrupted. After all, I guess it does tie into his academic work, too. Like, you know, if the point of keeping the banks in operation was to keep their role as a credit intermediary from collapsing, well then, wouldn't you want to promote them lending out the reserves that you're pumping in? But no, they, as I would say, to audiences at the time, at this point in October 2008, the Fed began paying banks to not make loans to their customers. A bit provocative, perhaps, but a true statement. Okay, so, well, well, gee, what's going on? And they like I said, there were guys like Scott Sumner and whatever were just scratching their heads, they're like, yeah, there's it's weird. It's like there's central banker Ben and academic Ben, and I think it's because. The point was not to do what the economics journals said the optimal policy was well gee we're just going to go consult our regression results in table 8.3 here of my academic work and there's three stars on this p-value so that's what we're going to go do no it was what's going to help these huge politically connected banks that's what we're going to go do that's what I think okay so now that we've been talking about the Bernanke why don't I transition and we'll talk about diamond dip big so here it's hard for me to convey my thoughts (laughs) so they had this famous 1983 paper let me just check make sure I got my date right because the Bernanke one was also 83 yeah I think theirs was 83 as well that's supposed to model bank runs and that spawned a literature I'm going to link to Selgin George Selgin has a good He didn't just write it in response to the Nobel, like Selgin's stuff was out there before. And then he re-linked to it when this news broke. But he has a good critique of, you know, saying this is what the diamond dip big model did. And then here's some reactions to it. But it was one of the most cited economics articles, certainly in money and banking. And then George, you know, I don't remember the exact phrasing he used, but it's one of the most cited economics articles, I think of all time, you know, <laughs> you could say that depending on how broadly you define the most. But this was a big deal. Right. And I remember it just to give you folks an idea of where things stand in economics. So this is what I mean. It, it's hard for me to think of how can I explain the situation to people who are not hip deep in mainstream economics and don't know the literature. But on the one hand, like what they're doing in this model, it's real obvious and like the conclusions that are being drawn from it and everything are just like, well, you guys didn't know that. But on the other hand, it's, well, these economists, they're not stupid, right? And the the problem is given the mathematization of formal economics, again, this is like going back to Paul Samuelson and he exemplified this more than anybody, it's hard to do anything in an economics journal article and get the thing published. Right, It's got to pass all these criteria of rigor. And so it's hard to do anything. So it's a blessing and a curse. On the one hand, whatever your model is that comes out of the other end and survives all those assaults that are placed upon it by the referees and so on, the thing is pretty robust. But then you're not sure when the thing comes out, is it applicable to the real world? I think in the social sciences, like in psychology, I know for sure they, they call it validity. So there they talk about, you know, does a research study, does it have internal validity versus external validity? And like I say, I know for sure they use this in psychology. I don't know if they use it elsewhere. And the idea is that, you know, if you're going to try to figure out if if somebody doesn't wash his hands, does that affect how willing he is to shake hands with other people or something? You're trying to do some psychology experiment. And so the internal validity would be things like, well, did you do a double-blind study, and you know, this sort of thing? Did you try to make sure that the sample population is, you know, representative of the overall population? Thing, you know, stuff like that, where you're just doing to make sure that what you're testing is what you're testing. But then, if you're trying to generalize the results and say, therefore, when people are worried about their health, that makes them less likely to interact with other people well, then you're sort of extrapolating. So like, what did you prove in the world of your little experiment? Make sure you did everything correctly internally, but then how much can we generalize those results? So that's the difference between internal validity and external validity. And so that's, in economics, I'm saying they have great internal validity that, oh yeah, if it, especially if it gets published in a top journal, for sure, the agent in the model would do the thing that the authors are saying would the person would do In this equilibrium like there's probably not a mistake in the derivation of the theorem but then to say oh and therefore that's why we need government FDIC well then that's a stretch okay and so that's kind of the situation with the diamond dip big model is given how hard it is to model things rigorously in economics I can appreciate the advances they made but yet if I try to in plain English explain to you what's in their model you're going to say that was pathbreaking and a way to motivate it is to say after the 2008 financial crisis, there was a renewed interest in the diamond dip big model and the literature that it spawned. And I remember economists saying things like, ah, you know, after this recent crisis, we're reminded of the lessons of diamond dip big and how important it is to have banks in our models of the macro economy. Right? <laughs> I'm not like making that up. Like, it was economists thought they could get by with. Central banks steering the economies, and hey, we're going to try to make sure we never have a Great Depression again, right? And all that stuff. And the basic models they were using to ostensibly guide their policy decisions didn't even have banks in them, right? So we're not talking about, oh, yeah, they had banks, and instead of us having 16 banks with names of JP Morgan or whatever, it was more abstract. No, no, no. There were no banks in the model. And these are some of the workhorse models that, you know, for example, I went through NYU, got my PhD there. In, uh, well, in 2003, I don't think I ever worked on a model that had a bank. They had the central bank in some models, just to be clear, because the central bank had to, you know, do things like set the interest rate or whatever. But there were no banks like private sector banks. So you say, well, how do they model bank runs? They didn't because there weren't banks in the model. All right. And so what did Diamond Diphtig do? They were trying to model bank runs. And to isolate, you know, what happens during a financial crisis when there's runs on banks. And so they have a model where there's two periods of investment. And so the idea is like if the agents lend their money to the bank, then the bank can go ahead and make loans to outsiders who invest it in a two-period process. But then after the one period expires or lapses, some of the original depositors might need their money back. All right, and so and that's a problem because it's more productive to leave the investments in place for the full two periods because then the thing shoots out more corn or whatever it is. All right, so if you you know you make some physical actual investments in farmland or whatever, and then after one period, if you just liquidated it and consumed everything, you'd have a certain harvest. But if you waited two periods, then the harvest is bigger. Okay, um, these are my words. I'm not. It's been a while since I've looked at the actual model. Okay. So, but that's the idea. But depositors, you know, they don't just want to directly invest in the two period physical production process because they're not sure what's going to happen after one period. They might want to get out. So, the role that the banks play in this economy is they're credit intermediaries, they borrow short and lend long. All right. They're effectively borrowing money from the depositors and then lending it out to the farmers. Again, this is my words. I don't even remember if it was, I think it was corn, but something like that. Some generic production process. All right. And then, so that's the issue. And so then the problem is, oh, if too many people try to pull their money out in the short term, then what's the bank going to do? All right. So that's the essence of it. And like I said, it's, if you're thinking like it took till 1983 for someone to write something that simple up into a formal model. Yes, it did. Because again, to make all the dot, all the I's and cross all the T's and make it all work consistently internally with rational expectations and blah, blah, blah. It's hard to do stuff like that. Okay. So that's why it took that long. And then once they did it and had that basic framework, because you want to be able to get it to do the thing in the real world that you're interested in. Right. So they had to make it so that they could have a bank run in the model. So the idea is, What's the simplest model we can come up with that exhibits some of the stylized facts of the real world phenomenon that we're trying to understand? That's what you're doing when you're doing these formal models. You actually want the thing to be as simple as possible so long as it captures what you think the essence is of whatever it is you're studying. The idea is by making it as simple as possible, you're isolating the thing that you're studying. You're not overwhelming the reader with all sorts of complicated details that really aren't relevant to the issue under study. That's the idea. Okay, so I liked their paper, you know, something wrong with it per se. The one th- in terms of like an internal critique, though, is people use this to justify government deposit insurance. And that is arguably wrong, even in terms of like an internal critique or, you know, the internal validity. Like, well, you could say, well, aren't you trying to generalize what happened in the model it's the external world? But even internally, the way they get it is there's an inconsistency. And so McCulloch and you, the person's last name is YU, pointed this out in a paper in '98, actually, called Government Deposit Insurance and the Diamond Dipfig Model. Let me just read the abstract. The apparent banking market failure modeled by Diamond and Dipvig 1983 rests on their inconsistently applying their, quote, sequential servicing constraint to private banks, but not to their government deposit insurance agency. Without this inconsistency, banks can provide optimal risk sharing without tax-based deposit insurance, even when the number of type one agents is stochastic by employing a contingent bonus contract. The threat of disintermediation noted by Jacqueline, 1987, in the non-stochastic case is still present, but can be blah, 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 Okay. So, in plain English, what's going on is in the Diamond Dipvig model, they show that there's various contractual mechanisms that you'd think the private banks could adopt to avoid a suboptimal outcome in terms of social welfare, you know, given that basic problem or tension that, gee... The depositors might want their money back after one period, but you've sunk the funds into a two-period investment process. So what are you going to do? And the issue has to do with there's uncertainty and the banks don't know how many people are going to want to pull their money out. If they knew how many people were going to want to do it, it would be fine. They could just contractually arrange everything and there wouldn't be an issue. The problem is if the bank you know, makes an offer contractually, but they don't know how many people are going to take them up on it because the number of the people who are going to end up needing their money or wanting their money back after one period is a random variable. Okay, so if that happens, so when they get to that part of their model, then they show up, see, free market fails. And then the government can come in and with adequate policy regulation can fix it. But what McCulloch and you are pointing out is if you actually look and see, because they try to formally show it, They don't just wave their hands and say, oh, so the government can come in and do better than this. But they say, you know, if the government has deposit insurance and then they are allowed to sort of see basically in order to make the government deposit insurance improve on the decentralized market outcome. They were implicitly allowing the government to know how many people in the economy were going to need their money back. Right. Because the government had to know how to set like the tax rate on the banks to fund the premiums for the deposit insurance. Okay, and so what McCulloch and you are pointing out, is, like, wait a minute, if the policymakers have enough information to get that right, because if they set the wrong tax rate, you know, like, oh, we're really sure there's gonna be a 90% bank withdrawal next period, and so we're gonna tax all the banks accordingly. well, that also would be suboptimal, right? That It's not enough just to say there has to be deposit insurance, they have to get some of the parameters right, or at least close enough. Otherwise, that's a cure worse than the disease. And so McCulloch and you were pointing out that Diamond and Dipvig are actually, when they try to demonstrate how government deposit insurance outperforms the market, they're assuming that the regulators know how many people in the economy are going to need their money next period. And then they set policy accordingly. But their point was, well, yeah, but that's it was because you said the bankers wouldn't know that. That's what's driving the market failure result. So it can't be both that's inconsistent. You can't assume the bureaucrats running the FDIC have more information about the types of bank customers than the banks themselves do. So sure, if you want to say the market's going to fail because in the real world, bankers don't know the exact characteristics of their customers, that's fine. That's true that they don't. And So if that introduction of realism makes it harder to show that the market's going to work out just fine, okay, but then you can't show that the government's going to improve on that if you don't have the same real world consideration applying to the government officials. All right. So that's sort of like an internal critique. More generally, and I made this point when I was talking with Jeff on the Human Action Podcast. Let me read you this excerpt from the Nobel announcement. You know, it summarizes the work of Bernanke and Diamond Dipfigg and then says, these dangerous dynamics can be prevented through the government providing deposit insurance and acting as a lender of last resort to banks. And so my point was, if you didn't know any better and you're just reading this Nobel announcement, you would think, oh, yeah, the 2008 financial crisis happened because we didn't have government deposit insurance and we didn't have a central bank acting as a lender of last resort. And then after everything blew up, people went back and read Bernanke and Diamond Dipig and said, you know what? These guys really have been arguing for decades that there should be government deposit insurance and a central bank that acts as a lender of last resort. Let's go ahead and do that. But obviously, I'm being tongue-in-cheek, all, you know, since the 1930s, we've had both government deposit insurance and a central bank, one of which is justifications and ostensible missions was to act as a lender of last resort when there's a crisis. So again, it's showing that at best, they paved the way for us understanding how those tools could help, but in the 2008 crisis, they did not. Unless you just adopt the thing and say, oh, things would have been even worse had it not been for the wise intervention of the Bernang. Okay, so that's the basic gist of their model. Let me, I guess, pivot and talk a bit about the Austrian take on these things. So again, let me motivate it this way. Why don't I play a clip? Because when I was doing research for this just to see, you know, exactly what's going on, the Diamond Dip Vig model, if I'm missing anything. And it really was striking to me just how elementary these observations were. All right. So here I'm going to play a clip from from the Olin Business School. He's talking with Mark Taylor. This was posted in November 2017. And it's called 35 Years Later, Diamond Dipvig model of bank runs. Okay. And so it's this one academic, the dean of the Washington University's Olin Business School, talking to Dipvig about, you know, his model with Diamond. And let me just play a little clip just to show you what in my mind is like, this is really simple stuff. This is stuff that if I were given a talk on banks, you know, I did do this for the Mises Institute. I had an online course several years ago where we were, you know, it was like money and banking. I forget the title. It was about money and banking in the Austrian tradition or something. And I mean, this was real simple stuff that I was explaining, like in the first or second lecture about, you know, the nature of fractional reserve banking and how that's an issue and blah, blah, blah. And yet here, you know, this guy in 2017, the Dean of a business school is talking to Dipvig, and they're making really basic points. So here, I'll just, I'll play an excerpt just so you can see what I mean.
1: So it's been what, 35 years now since the publication of the original Diamond
0: Dipvig paper, and that's had a tremendous influence on banking
1: industry and on financial regulation. Can you tell us what the essence of that model is? What is the key message of the model? The key message is that banks tend to be fragile because of the services that they provide and in particular people don't know when they're going to want their money out and giving people an option to take their money out when they want it is providing liquidity also tends to make the bank unstable because if people are worried about the bank's ability to give them their money back, then the banks tend to be unstable because if everybody does take their money out, then the bank will fail because they won't be able to cover all the withdrawals. So I guess the point is, so if we're putting our money into a bank, have a checking account with the bank, the bank may take
0: that money and lend it to a firm that invests this. So in a sense, my money is liquid in the bank, I can get it out so anytime I want. But the bank may have lent that money and lent other people's money and have that up of investment that can't be liquidated, illiquid investments. And I guess if we all take our money out at the same time, that's the problem is that there'll be a, the run on the bank, the bank will become unstable. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So the, one of the benefits that we get from the bank, and this is the benefit in the model, is that it creates liquidity. It provides this maturity transformation. So the assets are usually illiquid. Longer term assets and the liabilities are shorter liquid assets. So depositors can take the money out whenever they want to, but bank loans tend to be illiquid.
0: Okay. So your mileage may vary. Maybe you're going to be slapping your forehead and saying, Holy cow, I never realized the implication. But again, for those of us in the Austrian tradition, you know, we famously, Austrians fight about fractional reserve banking more than anything else. I guess lately we fight about whether. Hitler got a bad rap, but that's the thing we fight about all the time. So this is like, you know, Austrian stuff. Let's call it 201 as opposed to 101. And so it's funny to hear, you know, these people talking about it like that. So the basic problem. So here, I'll just, I'll wrap up this discussion just by summarizing the Austrian view of what causes the financial crisis. And this goes back to Mises and I will link to my most recent article, journal article, called More Than Quibbles, where I, this is the place where I make the case most fully. That what, this goes to my debate that I had, my Soho debate, I'll put a link to that too, with George Selgin, where I'm arguing that Mises' theory of what causes the business cycle has to do with fractional reserve banking per se. That I think it's slam dunk that Mises says Fractional reserve banking in a market economy causes the boom-bust cycle. Now, it's confusing because he also is in favor of free banking, by which he means don't have government micromanagement of banks, don't even have the government regulate their reserve ratios. But when you go and look into more about what's going on there, it's because he thinks the best way to limit the issue of what he calls fiduciary media, the best way to keep the reserve ratio pretty high is to just have there be open free competition among the banks. And Mises is worried that if the government comes in trying to micromanage it, they're actually going to end up giving privileges to the banks and then in a crisis, allowing them to have lower, a lower reserve ratio than they would under pure laissez-faire open entry into the banking sector. Okay. So that's the way I'm reconciling. And I I have never seen Mises argue. He says other things that are, complementary to fractional reserve banking in the sense like saying they did allow for some benefits. You know, he says like when there was when the demand to hold gold went up around the world as like the division of labor and world trade sort of encompassed the global economy had you not had fractional reserve banking there would have been you know a more painful need for prices to fall. Stuff like that. You know that okay. But that doesn't change what I'm saying, that he consistently throughout his career said fractional reserve banking per se causes the boom-bust cycle. Okay, so what's the mechanism, just real briefly? Because Mises thinks interest rates help coordinate production plans over time with consumers' desired consumption plans over time. And so, you know, here I'm being very loose, if people, if their patience increases, if they're willing to defer present consumption in order to get more enjoyments down the road, how do the entrepreneurs know to do that? Like they need to adjust production accordingly. They need to shift out of making hamburgers and sports cars in the present and use today's resources to build tools and equipment and other things that will help augment productivity, so that we can build more hamburgers and, or, or you know, make more hamburgers and sports cars and plasma screen TVs and stuff ten years from now, right? So there's a there's physically there's trade offs involved, and if you're willing to reduce the consumption you get today, that allows you to make things that increases the amount of consumption you can have in the future, and so the interaction of those two things is partly effected through adjustments in interest rates. And so again, just real loosely speaking, if people want to defer consumption today in order to consume down the road, what do they do? They save more out of current income. And then, Oh, if you go and deposit it with the bank that pushes down interest rates, that gives a signal to entrepreneurs that now it's more affordable to invest in long-term projects because the interest rates lower. And so then they go ahead and borrow more funds, invest in longer term projects, because now the new interest rate structure, the present value of you know a project that involved investment up front and the revenues only came in down the road. Now that might go from being a losing venture to being profitable with the new interest rate plugged in. And so you're going to go ahead and invest in that project now, whereas you wouldn't have before when interest rates were high. OK, so that's the way in which, you know, the decentralized market economy mechanism allows for changes in household desires concerning the timing of consumption to get into the production plans of the entrepreneurs. And so that society's scarce resources are deployed in ways that the consumers would appreciate. OK, so that's how it works when things work out well. Now what happens? You're in original equilibrium. The households have not changed their consumption desires. They have not become more patient. But instead, the banking system creates more money. And the way that money enters the economy is through the credit markets. And Mises says, in general, that's going to raise prices. But it doesn't just all happen at once. It's sequential. And the early sectors into which that new money hits are going to see their prices rise first before it sort of percolates around. And so if the money is coming in through the credit channel, this new money, it's not a helicopter drop, it's the banks loan the new money into the hands of the public, which is what happens. Then the price that gets distorted first is the interest rate, specifically like the price of bonds goes up. And so interest rates go down. Or intuitively, the bank creates a bunch of money and has to lend it out well, the only way to get the public to borrow a higher quantity of funds now than they did 10 minutes ago is to lower the interest rate. But the falling interest rate in this scenario is not because the public's patience has grown and they're saving more. They're not saving more. And so Mises says that sets into motion, an unsustainable boom where the entrepreneurs are taking society's scarce resources and they're investing them in longer term projects that society collectively is not willing to finance. They don't have the patience to wait for these longer projects to yield their harvest. And so that's the fundamental mismatch. And that's why there's what's called malinvestments during the false boom period. All right. So that's the Messassian story about how banks, by flooding the market with new money and pushing down interest rates to artificially low levels, sets up the boom-bust cycle. So specifically, how can banks do that? It's because of what's called fractional reserve banking. If banks could only, well, let me put it this way: this is the last thing I'll say. Banks perform two basic functions. They're a place of storing money, storing you know currency or gold coins, silver coins, if that's what the money is in your economy, for purposes of safety and convenience, so that you don't have to have if you want to have like twenty thousand dollars in quote cash to your name, you don't have to carry around in $100 bills and suitcases. You go put it into a bank where they have vaults and armed guards and insurance and all this stuff, and they just give you a debit card or a checkbook. And so that's the way you can still have access to your money and still buy things, but you're not carrying it around because that's vulnerable and bulky and inconvenient. All right. So that's one function that banks serve. Another function that banks serve is acting as credit intermediaries, where they link up savers and borrowers. And so here it's like, oh, if you know, you don't know what you want to do with your savings, you want to give it to the bank, they're going to offer you a modest interest rate and then the bank goes out to home buyers and evaluates their credit worthiness and gives them mortgages, right? So you you don't have enough to lend to a person to buy a house and it's not even like you and 10 other people are going to go in together and fund one mortgage because then if that person defaults, there goes your life savings. Right? And so a much better approach is you and thousands of other people deposit your money, or let's just say, lend your money to the banks, then they have their experts go out and evaluate applications for home purchases, and then they, you know, give the mortgages based on creditworthiness and the term structure and blah, blah blah. And then, yeah, some people are going to default, but that's fine because you've spread the risk among all the you know the pool. And that's just all built into the interest rates and so forth, right? So that's the idea. In practice, people often act as if those two functions are inseparably linked and that, oh, there has to be fractional reserving. It has to be the case that if you deposit $100 in the bank into your checking account and you're walking around town thinking you can spend that at a moment's notice, well, if the bank is going to act as a credit intermediary, they got to take some of that and lend it to somebody else and charge a higher interest rate. How's the bank going to make money otherwise? And, you know, so this tension between you wanting to lend short and the bank wanting to lend long is a problem. Well, no, it doesn't need to be. The bank could have separate accounts and really treat them separately, distinctly. So if you want to have a demand deposit account where you have instant access to your money, then that's one thing. And the bank could just keep those funds on reserve and not lend them out to people. Just like when you check your code at a restaurant, they don't lend it out to other people who need codes and just say, oh, don't worry, we'll have a code for you when you show up and turn in your claim ticket. No, the idea is you're holding my code. And even with things that are fungible, like money, like you don't need to get your specific $20 bills back when you withdraw money from an ATM, there could be stipulations that the bank is saying, yep, we will keep this money on hand where we will not go lend out some of this to somebody else. And the difference contractually is it's a loan versus a bailment is the specific legal jargon. All right. So Rothbard and people in his tradition were arguing checking accounts should be considered as bailments. And then you wouldn't have this problem. And so you could still do the credit intermediary stuff, but it's like you would buy a CD from a bank. you, know, you would buy a, like a one-year CD that offers you whatever, 3% interest. You give the bank $100 today. They give you a CD that 12 months from now... When you turn that in, they will give you $103. So there's no sense in which you're going to go into the grocery store and turn in your CD and try to buy $101 of groceries four months from now. The bank's going to say, What are you doing? That's not money. Whereas the grocery store does view claims on money issued by Bank of America as money, as interchangeable. When you swipe your debit card at the grocery store checkout, they view that as just as good as if you handed them currency of the same dollar amount. Okay. And so that's the problem in the Misesian tradition is that the community treats immediately payable claims to money issued by reputable banks as being economically interchangeable with the actual money. And that's the issue. Okay. So if you did that, if you had that structure in place where Banks can make a clear delineation between demand deposits that you have immediate access to, but then we're not lending that out. And then we're certainly not paying you an interest rate on it. In fact, you're paying us for the convenience of building this network of ATMs and having the checking system in place and blah, 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 and having, you know, issuing debit cards. You got to pay us, you know, however they're going to charge you a small flat fee per month or a percentage of your transactions, who knows how they'll do it. But you would have to pay the banks for your checking account balance. For, you know, the privileges associated with owning the checking account or controlling it. And then the credit intermediary stuff. Yeah, that works too. But you can't, you know, you don't have access to your, your money. If you wanted, you could go sell the bank CD on the open market and somebody else could pay you cash for it. And then, you, you know, if you needed cash. But that notice, that's different from what happens when you swipe your debit card. Okay. I said that was the last thing. Here's the last, last thing I'll say is I'm not going to get into it now. I'm actually not even sure what my own views are on this. I'm still tinkering with it and pondering. But some Austrians in particular, Walter Block and William Barnett have argued that fractional reserve banking is just the most famous example of this more general problem of maturity mismatch. And so if you see how, you know, I was trying to get around the issue there and I said, Oh, the problem is if you deposit your money with a bank and you think it's in a checking account, so that's immediately available. It's like you've made a loan to the bank that is instantly callable or, you know, has a maturity of one second. And the bank then lends that money out into a project that is tied up for more than a second. You know, that's the issue. And then I tried to solve that by saying, what if instead the model is you can have your demand deposits and those are one thing they're over here in a lockbox, but then over here for the credit intermediary role that banks serve, you can just buy a CD. So you buy, you know, you give them hundred dollars today, they give you a CD. CD stands for certificate of deposit, in case you don't know that. That, you know, this thing matures in 12 months and it has a 3% face interest rate. So you give them hundred dollars today for that thing and they'll give you hundred and three dollars next year. Okay, but what if we do that and the bank takes my hundred dollars today and then it goes and lends it into a mortgage? That's a 30-year mortgage. So now what? What happens next year when they owe me $103 and that mortgage is still tied up, right? So Walter Block and William Barnett are arguing it's not enough just to get rid of fractional reserve banking on checking accounts, but really the banks ought to be engaged in perfect or nearly perfect maturity matching where if the bank wants to use the savings of the community, of their customers to fund 30-year mortgages, they need to find a group of people who are willing to buy 30-year CDs. And that's how you do it. So then there's no issue of the bank borrowing short and lending long, that all of the assets and liabilities should be of the same maturities. And they're arguing that not only is that prudent and good policy, but that that's actually required you know, for the same reason that Certain Rothbardians argue that fractional reserve banking is unethical, that it's like a, you know, it's fraudulent or it's a violation of property titles or whatever. Block and Barnett, I I believe, are arguing that that's the same thing with maturity mismatch. And so there's pushback on that, that other Austrians who also oppose fractional reserve banking tell them, no, guys, we agree with you, fractional reserve banking is fraudulent, but in general, maturity mismatch is okay. So, anyway, I'm just mentioning that just to because that's an interesting debate and also kind of helps clarify. You, because I think a lot of Austrians want to do the second approach. They want to say fractional reserve banking when it comes to checking account balances is seriously problematic, arguably even fraudulent. But they feel like maturity mismatch in general. Yeah, maybe it's a bad idea. Maybe banks should watch out. So they end up sounding like Selgin and White. On the broader question of maturity mismatch, but they sound like Rothbard when it comes to checking account balances. So it's just kind of interesting, and it's good to go through that debate to really refine your intuition and see, well, gee, what what I actually am I trying to say? Why is it that if you do disagree with Selgin and White on the fractional reserve banking stuff, then do you go full block Barnett, or do you never go full block Barnett? Okay, for links. To a bunch of stuff pertaining to this discussion, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash two
1: fifty-two, and I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of the Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com